Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. I have a question. How are you coping? It's been six months since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. And for many, if not all, some aspect of our social, professional, or personal lives have changed, maybe forever. As a species, we're impressively adaptable. Through war, famine, and natural disaster, we've proven ourselves capable of rallying and coming together in times of need. This time around, however, coming together, at least physically, only exacerbates the problem. So it is, in relative isolation, we are all looking for new ways to cope. Many of the tried and true ways of dealing with stress and anxiety are no longer available to us, whether that's an after-work visit to the local bar to mingle with friends, a night at the movies, or dining out at your favorite restaurant. Going to the gym or the yoga studio poses its own set of risks and challenges. So what's left? How does one manage stress, stay fit, healthy, and focus on the task at hand? My guest this episode says mindfulness. It's a solution for our times. Davina Ho is co-founder and chief well-being officer at Hasiko, a Singapore-based advisory and training organization. She says that pre-COVID, stress levels in the workplace were on the rise. The global pandemic has only exacerbated the problem. So much so, she argues, that it's now time for employers to get involved. Davina Ho, thank you so much for spending time with us. Great. Thanks so much for having me here, Steve. Uh, we're, we're going to discuss mindfulness and meditation as it relates to the corporate uh, world and organizational engagement. So uh, before we do that, um, you have an interesting personal story. For years, you worked in finance and you were in an asset management, uh, and then you left. Could you tell us what happened? Sure, yes. I worked in asset management for about 10 years before I had my sort of call it personal crisis, or I like to reframe it as personal awakening. Um, and, you know, I was completely burned out. So I had done 10 years of crazy travel around the region and didn't really look after myself very well, you know, really put a lot of effort and focus into my career, you know, which is what you need to do, right, to succeed. I, I started in the industry just when the global financial crisis happened. So I had to work really hard to get a job and keep my job. So I really, after 10 years, began to burn out. And in my final year of working full time within asset management, I um I, I kept getting sick. You know, I had an autoimmune disease already. Um, I was tired. I was burned out. And, you know, I ended up in hospital twice. And then I was um, at a conference here in Singapore and I, uh, and I started to feel really uncomfortable in a meeting. So I was, uh, I was, you know, sitting there and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm, you know, I've got meetings all day. I've got results to do tonight. You know, I, I don't know what to do. So I, um, I, I was in uh, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel here, a very nice hotel at Marina Bay, and I, uh, I decided to go to the female toilets. I went to the disabled toilets. I took my dress off so that it wouldn't be creased, hung it at the back of the door, and I lay on the toilet floor. And I, and I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, thank goodness, I'm feeling a bit better. My stomach was bloated. I was like feeling nauseous, dizzy. I, I mean, I was overwhelmed. Mm. But at the same time, I was still on my phone checking emails, replying to them and doing results, right? Replying to everything that was coming in. And all of a sudden, the penny dropped. And I just thought, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing here? There has to be another way to live. You can't live like this. Mm. Epiphany. Basically, my, yeah. my epiphany. It was like time stopped and I just woke up. 
Mm. I was like, this is a crisis. This is not healthy. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. How quickly did you make a decision to then leave the industry and do something else? Uh, yeah, it was around about a six-month process. Uh, you know, I had to kind of explore what it was I wanted to do. I worked with an executive coach. Um, I really recommend, you know, having that insight, having somebody coach you and help you work through things. And and I also enrolled into yoga teacher training, which I had been doing yoga since I moved to Singapore eight years ago, um, having focused on Pilates before, but then really got into yoga. And that was life-changing. That really, that decision to, to enroll in that really changed the path, my career path, my yeah. view on the world and everything. So it wasn't just a slight shuffle to the left or right where you choose a different uh, job within the same industry, you fundamentally left to focus on health. And then what made you think about this as a career or uh, the implications for others who are dealing with this? Did, did, you, did you feel at some point that there's a role that you could play in helping others sort out their issues with stress? Sure, that's a great question. And and yes, it was it was basically that I, I realized I brought a very different and unique aspect to the world of yoga and meditation because I had that corporate background. Mm. I really understood what stress does to you professionally and personally in terms of your relationships and your lifestyle and everything, how it can really impact you. And I um I you know, I tried yoga in London and this is quite interesting, uh, you know, many years ago. And I, I, I didn't, re- I couldn't relate to it. It was so fluffy, you know, so out there, and it didn't match my career and my personal life. And I realized that there was space for a different type or a different viewpoint of 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 doing yoga and meditation, and how this can be integrated into people who are busy, right? We don't need to be in the Himalayas or in ashrams meditating and doing yoga all the time. We can integrate mindful moments into our daily life to improve our life and our health and well-being. Well, well, let's unpack mindfulness. I mean, it's a loaded term in so many ways, and it strikes different people different ways, and particularly corporate executives. Um, I I do see the rolling of the eyes when when, when you raise this and and you you introduce it, yet um, they're all about culture and culture change and embracing employees and assisting in this whole corporate purpose agenda is now incorporating health and welfare of the employees. So so when you say mindfulness, what do you mean? Sure. Um, And mindfulness is a very loaded term and people do look at it as a very fluffy way. And I think I'm here to educate people and change that as a viewpoint. So, you know, when you think of a meditation class within a corporate, you think of your employees going once a week for an hour to a class and then coming back and there's no integration, right, Mm -hmm. between what they're doing in that class, it's just one hour off there and then back to work. And there's also not a lot of data related to meditation within these settings. There's lots of data on, you know, um, how it impacts pain, trauma, depression, anxiety, stress, but within a corporate setting in terms of culture mm. and the practical implications of how you implement those processes and practices, there is a, a small trend of research now coming. And there are definitely, with this year with COVID, there's definitely more emphasis on that with apps such as Insight Timer and Headspace now going down the corporate route, focusing on research there. But 
before this, before this year, there was basically nothing. Well, before we talk about the data and the research, um, what is mindfulness to meditation and what is meditation to mindfulness? Sure. So mindfulness is really a way of being, right? It's a way of uh, being. So for a person or for an organization or for a society, this is how it's implemented into your daily life. Meditation would be a, you know, you sit down and have a practice. It's a practice of sitting there um, and it's not having no thoughts. Again, another misconception about meditation is about having self-awareness. It's about having a relationship with those thoughts and emotions and beliefs that are coming to you during the meditation practice and then moving towards stillness as you process and work through them and inquire into them. What is actually going on here and what action are they asking me to take in my life? So meditation is a means into a state of mindfulness. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. That's the way I would look at it. Can you say it it is to the mind what, you know, a, a workout is to the body? Yes, and I'm so glad you brought this up mm. um, because, you know, the way I look at it from sort of a meta perspective is that, you know, 100 years ago, people didn't exercise, right? Because we had very manual jobs. And then we moved to, you know, kind of 1960s, 70s, the aerobics, the workouts, you know, people needed to work out because we started to have sedentary lifestyles, right? We were kind of in the office working. And now look, in the past 20, 30 years, meditation mindfulness has exploded. And that's no coincidence. Really from a meta level, it's because we're using our brain so much, we're in overdrive. And now we're trying to find ways to make our mental well-being uh, or improve our mental well-being. Mm. You, you, said, you, you ran a survey, I think, uh, fourth quarter last year, uh, speaking with employees and trying to understand what are the dynamics of, of the workplace and, and how people feel, uh, some of the health-related uh, engagement, um, you know, stress. And, and you discovered that a high percentage of people you interviewed were dealing with inordinate levels of stress. And therefore, the idea was, well, maybe mindfulness could help. Was that your starting point? Yes, yes. I really wanted to explore, particularly here in Asia, whether people thought mindfulness uh, as a practice could help. And how do you sustain a practice? I don't think it's unusual now for most people I speak to have said, I've tried Headspace, I've tried meditation. And for some people it works and for some people it doesn't. And everybody knows that it helps them. That's Mm. what I discovered. But they couldn't sustain the practice. And and so for some listeners, Headspace is one of many meditation apps which are now available for a small monthly fee. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's probably yeah. one of the most popular um, a- apps that people use yeah. uh, that's out there. Yeah. It's like learning an instrument, is it not? You've got to practice, and it takes time and dedication and patience. And in this crazy busy world where we're distracted by a thousand things, that must be the hardest part for anybody to really understand what it is to be a meditator and therefore move towards mindfulness. What do you advise, and how do you get people in the right set of circumstances in order to apply this skill? You hit the nail on the head. And there was actually one study that showed that offering people the meditation app along with a three-hour training course significantly improved the usage of that app with a very high percentage, something like 85%, saying they understood how mindfulness and meditation impacted their mental well-being in a positive way. And I recommend that people do not only use the app as a tool, but also take 
private or group instruction from a trained teacher to learn about why they're doing what they're doing and how to integrate it into their life. I think Headspace is great as a tool, but I think there needs to be more information on how to sustain a long-term practice. Mm. And a lot of people get into difficulties when it comes to meditating. All the questions I get when I tell people I'm a meditation teacher, am I doing it properly? I find it hard to concentrate. They have, there's a lot of misconceptions about thoughts. I can't get, I can't still my mind, you know, there's so many different tools and different people have different ways of working, right? They're, we're all wired differently. Our brains work differently. Mm -hmm. So it's important that you have a person or someone that you can go to and ask these questions to and not just rely solely on kind of a, an app, which is great as a tool, as a practice to help you, but can kind of keep you separated from what it is you're trying to achieve. Let's come back to the workplace. Yeah. Why is this the responsibility of a corporation or an employer? Why can't this be something that you decide to do personally, like the food I eat or the exercise regimen that I choose to imbibe in? Why is this a corporate responsibility? Oh, we're starting to see that corporates are taking much bigger role in society than they ever used to, right? This whole purpose culture that we're moving towards, which is very important. And I'll give you a very extreme example of why people uh, or organizations need to take this into consideration. So not long ago, um, there was a company in France, a large telecom company, and they, uh, the executives there were charged uh, for uh, and, and put into prison because they had 19 suicides within they, under their management um, and uh, they, they, it was a toxic work environment and they didn't change it and there was lots of discussions about it and it was open and, and they didn't do anything about it and so um, so they were actually um, you know there, there's a legal responsibility right. and that's a very extreme example but you know you look at um, even um, some of the large investment banks right in the industry I worked with in the past few there, years, there has been interns and graduate trainees who have done, you know, 16, 20 hour shifts and committed suicide because they're so overwhelmed. And that culture needs to change. Well, well that's interesting because in your data, you were pointing to Gen X and Gen Z and actually their propensity to leave due to stress was much higher than those that were in their 30s, 40s or even 50s. Why is that? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that, actually. I don't know why it's the younger generation. I think, um, you know, I can make guesses to why it is. I mean, I, I suppose it's the fact that, you know, they, they look at the world very differently to how we used to work, look at the world, right? We get a job and we stay in it for 20, 25 years, and now they're looking for something else. They're looking for meaning, purpose. It's almost like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Your basic needs are met, um, and then you're looking for something different, right? You're looking for those self-transcendental states or the meaning and purpose that comes through with what you're doing. So yeah. I, I could guess it would be that kind of shift um, from kind of the, the needs base where um, myself, yourself, our parents were focused on material wealth, and yeah. now the younger generation are looking at something different. So a bit of a backlash from materialism, consumerism, but and, and is this universal? Is it true in Asia as well as North America and Europe? I think Asia is a little bit further behind, actually, mm. um, when it comes to um, integrating a lot of this stuff. I think culturally, there's quite a big taboo when it comes to um, mental health, mental awareness, and understanding the difference between that and mental illness. Mm. And um, culturally, you know, it's very difficult. You know, I know people who are very scared to say, I went to see a psychologist or I've got a problem and I need help. It's it's um, that culture of um, 
showing showing face, you know, and, and wanting to be strong for for everyone around you. So I, I think there has to be a lot of education done here in Asia on the, on the mental health space. Do you believe that um, that companies are prepared to embrace this idea of introducing meditation, mindfulness practices into their organizations? And if so, can you give a couple examples of companies that have done this anywhere in the world? Sure. I think a year ago in Asia, my discussions were very different with companies. They didn't see it as a priority. I think given the situation that we've had in the last six months with COVID and the increasing amounts of people we're seeing who are very stressed out, have high anxiety levels, uh, they're beginning to realize the impact it's having on uh, the productivity and, and in the workplace and how teams are managed. And just in terms of your examples of companies, um, I was at Mindful Leaders Conference in Washington, D.C. last November, and there were several case studies there, um, which I thought were excellent on different ways that you can integrate mindfulness uh, into the workplace. And one company that really stood out to me was a company called Empro. Uh, the CEO, um, CEO Marvin Riley has been a long-term meditator, and they had not only integrated mindfulness as an um, into the organization in terms of uh, classes, but in terms of every single meeting, in terms of how they conduct their processes and operations, and also globally. So they had d- different locations in France, China, and they'd managed to bring this into their processes and practices all around the world, which I thought was a phenomenal achievement, very difficult to do. And, and admirable, but mm. it strikes me as maybe one of these Silicon Valley fad things where founder finds himself and therefore wants to distribute the beauty and the wealth. It is, is, but that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about at a corporate level. If, if, if anything, I understand that you know, Alphabet and Starbucks and others have also introduced different types of programs at a widespread uh, level, uh, even internationally. What do, what do we have? You know, CEOs love data. Like, what, what are the results? What, what does that show us after how many months or years of doing this? Are they seeing a result in terms of higher productivity, uh, lower absenteeism, uh, you know, higher engagement? What are you seeing? All of these things, actually. Mm. And um, particularly for the U.S., lower healthcare costs is a huge um, benefit for a company. Um, but uh, one company, which is not U.S.-based, but um, has a global um uh, reach in terms of employees is SAP. So they created something called the Business um, Health Culture Index, and they've actually shown that a 1% increase in that index across their employees results in a 90 to 100 million euro uh, improvement in, in the bottom line, and they've been tracking that for many years. And that's not just about mindfulness, just just to, to clarify, that's in terms of the entire um, health health space for them. Mm. How do you, at the end of the day, it's an individual decision to sit quietly for 20, 30, 40 minutes, once, twice, three times a day. Um, that That's time out from everything else it can be doing. And not to mention the, the difficulty, the challenge of, of doing that for many people. It's easier for many people to take a run than it is to sit quietly for 20, 30 minutes. How do companies in, who have decided to integrate this encourage and support that type of behavior within the business? Sure. It very much comes down to all managers have to be aligned. If you are taking a 20-minute break away from your desk, you can't be thought of as somebody who's slacking. As long as you're meeting your you know, your targets, you manage your own time. We're all adults now, right? We don't need to be sat at a desk between 9 and 6, forced to work uh, just because just so it looks good, right? If we need to take a break, we take a break. Mm. The only problem is, is that physical spaces are not set up 
to a lot of this. If you want to take a break, where are you going to go, right? There's, you know, is there a silent room within an organization somewhere that you can go and rest and restore? Mm. Um, and then also, you know, I also like to tell organizations it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, 30 minutes, three or four times a day. You know, what you want to do is you want to begin to offer tools that people can use whenever something arises for them that they need to work through. For example, if you're very nervous before a presentation, it's causing you a lot of anxiety. What what are the two minute tools you could use before that presentation Mm. to help Mm. that employee get over their performance anxiety when it came to a presentation, for example? So so different tools for different sets of circumstances. So it's not just one size fits all. Absolutely. I think it needs to be... um, um, uh, 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 a lot of different ways or aspects can be brought into the organization uh, from a culture perspective to support this. It can be um, meditations that are 20 to 30 minutes long. It can be two-minute tools five times a day. Um, and and really, um, I think one of the things I really liked about um, what the Empro CEO was saying, that they do a one-minute check-in um, at every meeting and a checkout and if meetings are longer, they have a schedule of how many mindfulness minutes they'll have in those meetings, Mm. taking time to have self-reflection and then setting intentions for that meeting are super important. So discipline. Yes, it is a discipline. And it does need to be within an organizational context, put through processes and practices to be Mm. fully embodied by that that company and to avoid mindfulness. Right. What is McMindfulness? <laughs> yes, so McMindfulness is um, a term coined. Uh, there's a book on this by Ron Purser, and really um, on organizations using mindfulness for their own benefit, right, for their, their bottom line. So bringing in mindfulness so that you can work longer and harder hours for the organizations. That's basically what it boils down to. And uh, my view on that is, you know, any, any kind of mindfulness or meditation technique that is helping somebody is is fantastic great do it allow that person to then evolve and grow their practice to where they feel like it should go um yeah it, it is an employer's uh desire to want to increase productivity or reduce uh absenteeism uh mutually exclusive to the health of the individual isn't that a reasonable desire and and a reason to invest and support this type of practice yeah i i i agree i think it, it you know as long as it's helping everybody, there's an individual need and there's a universal need, I feel, for for mindfulness and meditation Mm. within organizations. So it can help the individual, it can help the company, it helps society. Not only does it help the individual, but it can help their families, right? The knock-on effect um, has been proven in research, right? One person starts meditating and it has a knock-on effect across all of their relationships. Mm. So so that's a, a reason to to incorporate it so so let me let me lay this out this way i'm a ceo of an asia-based business i've got six thousand employees in 15 different markets um i work in kind of a high-paced sales-oriented business b2c the demands are huge people are working remotely now i'm i've got lots of questions about um you know engagement and keeping people connected and building a corporate culture what would you say to me if I'm looking around and saying, I, I'm worried because productivity is falling, my people are falling by the wayside, I can't seem to get the responses I got before, we're not teaming in ways, what would you say to them and how would you introduce this idea? I would recommend, and this seems very simple, I would ask them, do a full study on your employees' health and well-being 
and find out what support they need. You know, ask them, how are they doing? You know, what, what are the tools and things that you need to support um, yourself? Because people, when you're asked, they have answers. They're just not going to voice them if, unless they're not asked, right? Particularly mm. in Asia, and people are more reserved. So I would start with that. And, and a question, does it need to be uh, attributed or anonymous? Because a lot of people don't want to admit that, you know, it's more than I can handle or I'm having a hard time juggling my life. They they don't want anybody to know that, They they, they particularly in Asia, I would say. W- w- what do you do and how do you recommend somebody goes about asking those questions? Yeah, I would do a, an anonymous survey um, and allow people to be very free in what they say. But I would also collect some personal data, you know, understanding is this person, if you're working from home, are they alone in the house? Or do they have young children that need to be looked after? Mm. Or teenage children, you know, what, and, and how those needs vary across different sub-segments of, of your employee base. Because like we discussed earlier, uh, one size does not fit all. And different people will have different needs and um, availability on times, for example, if you're setting up uh, well-being sessions. um, Some people might prefer the weekend. Some people will prefer during working hours. Some people need to wait till the children have gone to bed. There's so many little details that um, that need to be considered when you're implementing this, particularly in a very complicated environment like we are just now with with COVID and working from home. So start with a survey, find out what people are experiencing, and then what? Yeah. And then um, obviously analyze the data, you know, look at key trends and categories and what people need. And if uh, people are, you know, extremely stressed out, you know, and, you know, you're obviously surveying for that. um, you know, you would have asked in that survey, you know, what are the things that you would most find useful, right? Is it taking time off, more flexible working hours? Is it health and well-being, mindfulness and meditation? You know, what are the things that you could offer to support um, those employees and what fits within your budget and your culture. Yeah, you raise an interesting point because if you ask somebody, what do you need? They will typically reply with what they understand. But if they haven't had experience with mindfulness or meditation, they might say more time off or more sleep. Again, you've got a role to play, I suspect, in educating the employee, employee and not just the employer. Uh, what, what advice would you offer in terms of um, helping the company uh, educate their people on what's available to them? Yeah, so I really recommend um, experience because um, that's the only way people learn and understand what mm. it is that they like. And so with some of the companies I've been working with over the past six months, um, they've come to me and we've done very short 30-minute meditation sessions before offering a course, for example, an eight-week course. Yeah. I wouldn't go into an organization, force everyone to take this eight-week course, and then it's just so abstract people don't understand it. Right? You've got to have a cultural fit and understand you know, what are people needing now? And maybe it's shorter meditations or maybe it is more time off and extra sleep, like you said, and and build from there. you got to meet your employee base where they are. There's no point in starting at, you know, the top and then engagement, you know, is, so, is low because people feel disconnected from what the offering is. You've just referenced something quite important, which is corporate culture. So if you come from a, I guess, a Silicon Valley startup, a founder is already predisposed, um, you have that culture built from the ground up versus, you know, a large hundred year old, uh, you know, organization with a big brand and a reputation. How do you shift and how essential is it in order for mindfulness to work to have a corporate culture that's, that's designed to support that and other things? Yeah, corporate culture is super important. And, you know, that is really led from the CEO, the founders, the top. 
And um, and in order to do that, you need to be able to hire the right types of people who can advise you, who have um, implemented processes and practices in previous organizations, understand how you can integrate this into your day. For example, doing the meetings, check in, check out. That's great if it's just a CEO doing it with his board, right? Yeah. But if you're at a manager level and you've got a team of 40 and you've never done anything like this before, that's daunting, right? You need training on that, yeah. right? You need to be able to to bring this all the way from the top down. And that's going to take time yeah. and it's going to take effort and um, it's going to have to be, a, like you said, a culture, culture shift within the organization. Mm. Setting is important too, isn't it, Davina? And, and, and I think um, one of the things that you picked up in your survey was only 2% of respondents said that they attempted to meditate in a work environment. Everyone else was from home or outdoors or wherever they could find some peace and solitude. In this time of COVID, as uh, office space is no longer as essential as it once was, and there's going to have to be some reconfiguring of what an office looks like to keep social distancing and people safe, do you see an opportunity for companies to deploy and build meditation rooms? Uh, I know in many places in Indonesia and Malaysia, you'll find prayer rooms set aside for their Muslim employees. Is there a similar opportunity here, meditation rooms or, or spaces within the office that are understood to be quiet spaces for people to do just this? And then again, of course, to have it encouraged. Absolutely. I think that's one of the key parts of the the equation is encouraging it through having that space uh, to do so. Because if you give people the process and the practices and then don't give them the space, Mm. it's the missing ingredient. So absolutely, as offices and people are considering how to reconfigure Mm. their meeting rooms and their spaces, I think it's very important for them to begin to consider how how they can make their space more conducive to employee well-being. Mm. Davina, uh, great work and wonderful that you're doing this. And I'm glad you've had your personal uh, transformation as a result. Um, Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you very much, Steve. That was my conversation with Davina Ho, co-founder and chief well-being officer at Hasiko, a Singapore-based advisory and training organization committed to bringing wellness and mindfulness into the workplace. But why do that? Don't corporations have enough to deal with now without including employee programs and mindfulness? Studies show that reduced productivity, poor health, and absenteeism can mean the difference between profit and loss. For most organizations, people are the core asset. If they fail to perform, the organization falters, and who can afford that in a time of growing uncertainty? Still, for many corporate leaders, the idea of introducing meditation or other forms of mindfulness to its workforce remains a distant concept. For others, it's downright counterintuitive. In the minds of most, pumping up productivity means increasing the effort, working harder, and doing more. If people were machines, that might make sense. Layer in some additional processing power, data analysis, or functionality, and see if you can't eke out a half percentage of extra productivity, right? But people aren't machines. The mind, as much as the body, needs rest. Rejuvenation is central if you're to count on clarity of thought, high performance, and sound decision-making. I've been around long enough to know that corporate leaders are still all about building performance cultures. You want a better sales result? The answer lies in investing in more sophisticated sales management platforms, lead generation, and trackable performance measures. In other words, you introduce new tools to drive a better result. Meditation is a tool. 
And like upgrading a company's enterprise software, it comes with planning, implementation, and training. The only difference is that humans are less binary than machines, which means you'll need to customize and encourage variations on the tool until you hit on what's right for every individual in your organization. I know what you're thinking. It all sounds just a little too experimental. Executives like data. Data drives decisions. So what's the data on mindfulness in the workplace? Unfortunately, it's mixed. So much depends on the culture of the organization and the determination of top management to integrate these practices in everything they do. It's typically not enough to allow an employee to sit quietly for 20 minutes twice a day in order to reboot. There's more to it. How to educate employees, get them to commit, and build support groups to ensure that best results are possible is what it's all about. It's no different from sales training. You can learn all the skills you want, but the benefits are only as good as the results. If you're still not convinced, here's one more thing to consider. As Davina points out, Generation X and Z aren't waiting around for an organization to figure out what needs to be done to attract and retain them. They are actively searching for a new kind of corporate culture that embraces the whole employee, invests in their well-being, and offers something more than a monthly paycheck. Still not sure? Well, then I suggest you meditate on it. That brings us to the end of this episode. We thank you for listening. We live in unusual times, and as companies contemplate a post-COVID workplace, maybe this is the moment to give mindfulness some newfound attention. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.